Welcome to the heart of Brick Lane. Perhaps its reputation for curry, the abundance of thrift stores, or the streets of murals drew you here. But while you're here, I challenge you to do something a little different. I challenge you to think of one tradition or celebration that doesn't involve food. Oh, did you think of one? Was it fasting? Even that focuses on the absence of food as well as the enjoyment of it post-fasting. Why do I bring this up? Because food is so deeply tied to our cultural and collective identities. Food tells a story. And today, you're going to hear four stories of four different foods, all found here on Brick Lane. You might mistake Brick Lane for Kreuzberg in Berlin, the Peace Wall in Belfast, Ihua Mural Village in Seoul, the East Village in New York City. But I warn you to look closer. On the surface, street art, color, and the essence of hipster shines, but further in, its uniqueness arises. This walking tour is about engaging your senses. Sense most strongly trigger our memory. We use touch for hands-on learning. Sound brings us into the here and now, engaging us in the present moment. Sight is how we observe and describe. But this tour focuses on taste the tastes of identity. Using food as a means to understand history and identity, we'll dive into the narratives of four cultures found on Brick Lane, the British, the Indian, the Jewish, and the Bangladeshi. Tea tells a story of colonization, sugar of dehumanization, curry of migration, and bagels of immigration. Altogether, they tell a story of translocations, globalization, and our search for authenticity. Now, I just throw out a term there that you might not be familiar with. Glocalization. That wasn't a misstep. It's not supposed to be globalization. We know globalization. We are in the midst of globalization. Glocalization takes a step back and in because it's about the global and the local. It's this challenge and this tension between the two that calls for our attention that they are very interrelated and you really don't have one without the other. Okay, now that we have our bases covered, let's get to this tour, shall we? Right now, you're standing outside of the London Tea Exchange. If you wish to have a cuppa, feel free to pause the tour and grab one sip. The stop screams British, doesn't it? What is more British than afternoon tea? But how did it become British? Tea first appeared in London in 1658, known as the China drink. Costly to import, tea was a drink for the rich and the fashionable. As popularity for the hot drink rose in the 18th century, Britain came to an impasse, needing to meet consumers' desires while avoiding the skyrocketing annual import costs. The answer was opium, and so began the Opium Wars. In Bengal, the British East India Company grew opium to trade with China in exchange for tea, which continued until 1839 when Britain declared war on China, who responded with a tea export embargo. Given Britain's occupation and colonization in India, the problem was quickly fixed with the Assam Tea Company developed in 1840. Consumption of tea just continued to grow, going from 23,730,000 258,847,000 pounds from 1801 to 1901. Now, how do you enjoy your tea? With a spoonful of sugar, 
helps the medicine go down, doesn't it? The use of sugar in tea was not new to India, but the widespread use of cane sugar in Europe began after importing sugar from the Caribbean. In London, the working class survived off of the sweet warmth, which gave bursts of energy and spirit to continue laboring. Tis how the British would tell you. But sugar first had to come a long way across the Atlantic from Guyana. Guyana was a British colony known for producing the best sugar in the world, known as Demerara sugar. The sugar that we love comes from the history that we hate, slavery. In 1838, the first 400 Indians were sent to South America. In total, 239,000 Indians were sent to Guyana, not including any more sent elsewhere, such as Jamaica or Barbados. So one piece, size it as you may, one piece of British identity is based on the story of colonization and slavery. Tea is warm, but its story is cold. Sugar is sweet, but its history is as bitter as they come. How does London cope with this? Quite honestly, I'm not sure they do. I'll explain what I mean as we move on to our next stop. To find your way, you can look at the map on screen, or if you're listening to the audio version, use the directions posted on Instagram. So, back to the story. The roots of tea is what you may call an eviscerated past. The identity of tea, the Britishness of tea, is disengaged entirely with its history, independent of the past. Tea has taken on a zero identity, a present identity. Another interpretation is that the true Britishness of tea represents the long tradition of migration, colonization, and diversity in London, and that Britishness as an identity is validated and predicated upon multiculturalism. However, I do have a concern with the integration and evisceration. The struggle for reparations is ongoing between Great Britain and former colonies in the Caribbean. Great Britain claims they are morally cleansed because their role in the slave trade was legal when it occurred. However, international laws on crime against humanity have no time limits to incriminating these crimes. Thus, Great Britain's belief that legality transcends moral obligation doesn't seem to stand. So, does T actually tell us the British identity is one that evades? I don't know. Alright, if you didn't pause the video before, I invite you to focus on making your way to the next stop, Dishoom. And if you're already here, welcome back. You are now outside of Dishoom, a popular Indian restaurant resembling the cafes one would find in Bombay, now known as Mumbai. Visiting London, I was told I must get curry from Brick Lane for the Indian food in Britain will compete with that in India. My expectations were high having been to India myself. I also found it quite peculiar that curry is considered a national dish in Great Britain. The phrase going for an Indian has become commonplace. There are two stories I want to share with you about the cuisine's integration into English life. The first story is about assimilation. The beginning of Indian restaurants in London were catered to the male Indian workers and students who had arrived in London alone prior to decolonization. As the white colonizers returned home and missed their days of being important functionaries, they became the restaurant's new target. Indian cuisine was advertised as encouraging the Englishmen to eat again a real curry and remember their days in India. For the rest of the English, 
The remainder of colonization was filled with negative connotations, including dirty, diseased, and uncivilized. The expectation was for the Indians to assimilate, and dietary habits and food choice are the prime example of conforming or digressing. Interestingly enough, recent studies that examine the relationship between social identity and food evaluations show that people may choose to consume foods to signal their social identity to fellow group members, to follow norms of a social group or culture, or feel like one has attained a desired identity. What does that mean? <laughs> Food is central to assimilation and tradition. There's a serious struggle between signaling one's social identity to fellow migrants while also following the norms of British culture and the desire to be accepted. And so what happened? The story of modification. And the star of the show is chicken tikka masala. Chicken tikka being Indian with masala sauce to satisfy British tastes. Today, the majority of customers at the Indian restaurants are white. Instead of assimilation, politics focused on integration in the mid-1960s. Integration was defined as not a flattening process of uniformity, but cultural diversity coupled with equality of opportunity in an atmosphere of mutual tolerance. I don't know about you, but tolerance is not quite the ideal word I had in mind. We come together as family and as friends and share meals. It is one of our favorite pastimes. Sharing food, breaking bread, it's a symbol of trust and relatedness. What we have failed to recognize is that there's a sentiment that if you share food, if you eat each other's food, there's an acceptance that occurs that doesn't really happen elsewhere. To say you accept someone's identity, be it individual, familial, social, or cultural, but then not eat their food, not share in that experience, that's not acceptance. That's tolerance. That's conditional. So I question now the use of modification if it is simply tolerance. At what cost is one identity traded for the tolerance of another? By examining closely the rise of Indian restaurants and the commodification of multicultural cuisine, we see the background of hostility. If going for an Indian is a white consumer practice, how much tolerance of the other is there really? If the modifications are the accepted version, doesn't that reinforce the West is best mentality? Another rhetorical question. As we move on to our next stop, I want to bring us back to the culture on Brick Lane, the identities on Brick Lane. You can take this moment to pause the video and follow the map on the screen or follow the directions posted on Instagram, or you can listen as you move to stop three. As I said, the West is best mentality may still underlie perceptions and may too underlie geographical borders. In case you hadn't realized, Brick Lane is in the East End of London. Actually, just now as I'm saying this, I realize the irony that the East is placed in the East End of London. I mentioned earlier, you may be drawn to Brick Lane and the East End for the hipster reputation it has today. This reputation originates from the characterization of being exotic, hazardous, and analogous with the African jungle. Jack London was told not to come here because a man's life isn't worth two pence. Other stereotypical depictions include Jack the Ripper and the Victorian slum. However, 
What is most characteristic about Brick Lane and the East End is the tradition of migration and movement. It is the first stop for newcomers, but they circulate through as who is the other changes. One other that would be hard to spot is the Jewish community. Through the 18th and 19th centuries, Jewish people made up nearly 100% of the population in the East End neighborhoods. Okay, if you didn't pause before, let's pause now and meet up at our next stop. If you're already here, welcome back. You've made it to the next stop, Bagel Bake, a traditional Jewish bagel bakery. Its specialty is the salt beef bagel, known as the best in London. And let me tell you, they are not exaggerating. Bagels are both as classic as it gets and is rather hipster. Today, everyone happily flocks to the bakery to enjoy a bagel, but a couple hundred years ago, anti-Semitic beliefs were high. The East End was a dangerous place, and there were many associations between prostitution, crime, poverty, and Jewish. In fact, during the search for Jack the Ripper, many Jewish males were blamed for the crime. The Jews were called the troublesome strangers, and in response to the 1753 naturalization bill, the British would say, no Jews, no wooden shoes. As new waves of migrants, specifically South Asians, came to London, the Jewish moved to the suburbs, leaving behind few members and small traces of the community. So now I ask about forgotten identities, specifically the forgotten identities that go from the other to the alike. Though the Jewish identity is not tied to Brick Lane, their presence set the foundations of the ethnoscape of Brick Lane, and their absence shows how the changing othering and prejudices can silence the layers of ethnoscapes of a place. In a diasporic community such as the East End neighborhoods of London, people simultaneously belong and are excluded, and with a more threatening other, they are included. One question to consider is whether or not all social settlements that are based on ethnicity have a particular spatial lifespan. In other words, when a place such as Brick Lane is a settlement for ethnic groups, is this settlement bound to change as it is based on ethnicity? Thus far, it seems to be the case, but now we've let history catch up to us. Who knows what the next settlement will be, if there even is one. We're going to make our way now to our final stop of the tour. Feel free to pause now or after this next little bit and use the map on screen or the directions on Instagram to find your way. We're moving now from one end of Brick Lane to the other. I encourage you to use this time to use your senses and notice what is around you. What do you observe? What can you describe? What sounds do you hear besides my voice? What scents do you smell? Do they remind you of anything? Walking down the street, I see people bustling around, teenagers popping in and out of thrift stores excited by their new finds. I hear voices, mixed languages and accents. I catch whiffs of spice, of chocolate, of coffee. There's a slight muskiness, though I'm not sure if that is a feeling or an aroma I can't quite place. I want to draw your attention to the tourism around you, be it Londoners or foreigners wandering about. While the reimagination of Brick Lane as a tourist destination has brought economic growth and the utilization of the East End as a space for immigrant minorities allows for the maintenance of ethnic ties and traditions, the regeneration reinforces alienation, the notion of us and them. I don't know if there is an answer or a better way because it is imperative for cultural groups to maintain their individual identities and to be able to hold on to their language, their religion, their relatedness. 
Yet, identity is a feedback loop. When we reinforce our identity, we do so in every way, good or bad. Perhaps then the issue is on what level an identity is enforced. Does it come from the micro level, the people, the day-to-day -day interactions? Or does it come from a macro level, urban governance and public policy? Or does it come from the meso level, the global understanding of a tourist map that delineates the multiculturalism we find across metropolitan cities? Even deciding which level is the right and wrong way to enforce identity is problematic though because biases, discrimination, racism, othering happens at every level. Perhaps then it's a matter of checks and balances. The levels keep each other in check. These are just a few ideas, but the point is let's be aware of who is defining who. All right, you know the drill. If you didn't pause before, Pause now and make your way to our final stop. And if you did pause before, welcome back, yet again. You are now at the Monsoon, a Bangladeshi restaurant. I told you we were in Brooklyn, but what if I told you we were actually in Bangladesh? The new name for the East End comes from the 80% Bangladeshi population. After the civil war in Pakistan, Bangladesh became an independent state in 1971. In this later part of the 20th century, more and more Bangladeshi migrated to London, especially with the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act. Walking through Bangladesh now, you're offered to taste the authentic cuisine, and yet, what even is authentic? I ask this rhetorically because I don't know the answer either. I can attempt to define authentic, perhaps as genuine or reflecting one's true self or nature. But what makes food or a cuisine authentic? The person who makes it or the recipe? The ingredients used or the experience? If based on the recipe or the ingredients, to achieve authenticity in gastronomy is going to be near impossible as ethnic foods are continuously being reinvented by using substitute ingredients and by challenging our constructs of what culture is and isn't. Brick Lane is now the heart of the Bengali community in London and features a celebration for the Bengali New Year along with various curry festivals. From the eight cafes and restaurants in 1989 to now having the largest cluster of Bangladeshi and Indian restaurants anywhere in the UK, the cultural tourism has successfully reconstructed Bangladesh as a picturesque backdrop. At what cost does the Bangladeshi community trade a thriving economy and the preservation of ethnic ties for becoming a spectacle of the other? To what extent is authenticity traded for the Disney-fied versions of authenticity that we ask for? And that brings us to the end of this tour. Food offers us a lens into the identities, cultures, and histories of people and places, as I hope I demonstrated to you today. There is no separation between food and identity. Food embodies our backgrounds, our beliefs, our passions, our assumptions, our personalities. Food narrates migration, assimilation, resistance, colonization, and change over time. If nothing else, I want you to take away this. You are what you eat. Not the first time we've heard that one. But that saying isn't meant to be a call to eat your vegetables and cleanse your body. You are what you eat. You eat what you are. And who you are is an identity. 
maybe multiple identities, and what we eat is an expression of our identities. Beyond that, eating and food is a reaffirmation of one's identity. It's a feedback loop, a reinforcing cycle. If you want to change who you are, I guarantee you've changed how you eat as well. Maybe on a large scale, you reject the culture you come from to adopt the culture you want to become. Or on a small scale, you want to become more studious and intelligent, and I bet you either fall into stereotypical college lifestyle eating, or you eat labeled brain foods. You gotta love those omega-3s. And coffee. I guarantee there's going to be lots and lots of coffee. What am I? A cookie. But that story's for another time.